Have you ever played the game Clue? You guys know that game? It's a detective game, if you don't know, and you move from room to room trying to piece together a, a murder mystery. And it's wonderful when you finally find the particular clue that puts everything together and you can declare, it was Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the conservatory. <gasps> That's right. <laughs> this uh, idea... <clears throat> of interpreting the Bible happens this way sometimes. There are pieces that when laying on the table don't necessarily make sense. There's some things that feel like how do these fit together in our particular passage, but we will like Sherlock Holmes see how to deduce the information, how to see what piece unlocks an understanding of the scriptures because this is one major theme that is in scripture in terms of Christ and his redemption. The first point that I have to make today is really a simple one. It's that Christ is the center of redemption. And I'm tempted to do what I did previously. You'll notice that in our reading before this word is there is the expectation from Moses that there is a a sort of reenactment, as it were, of what Moses is doing and what the Christ who is to come will do. A prophet like me will arise, speaking of Christ. But I've done that sermon a couple times now in Acts, and what I want to focus on is something that also will help us understand Christ in the Old Testament. And so this will be the main part of what we look at today. We're going to go to a number of different places um, because what we're required to do as Bible readers is to harmonize one thing with another. You all will have come across places in the Gospels where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. They have a lot in common, most of the same stories, but there will be certain pieces that one sounds different than the other. The presentation is slightly different and you're wondering how to put these things together. It's called harmonization. They all are God's word. They all are completely true. Uh, they're not playing fast and loose with the, the, the theology that they have. These things go together, and sometimes it's hard to do that. Well, the same is the case <clears throat> in some of the places in the Old Testament, and I just want to draw out one here before we go look at uh, the account itself. So as you know, Stephen is rehashing or retelling what had happened in the Exodus. He's talking about Exodus 3. We'll go there in just a minute. But you notice that he relays in verse 30 that there is an angel who appeared to Moses in the wilderness in the burning bush. It's an angel is what we hear. And then right after that, you see first person speech. The angel in the bush says, I am God. I am Yahweh Almighty. And you go, well, how how do these two things together? You should first know before we go to Exodus that Malak, the word angel, is not only referring to angelic beings. That's the first thing that comes up in our mind. But really, at root, it means messenger. And so it, it's either an angelic messenger, different, not a human, or it can be a human messenger, 
Both are considered angels. I think that's where some of the confusion is in 1 Corinthians where uh, I won't go into that passage. But that's a difficult one too because it uses the word angel. But angel really just is talking about a messenger who's sent by somebody. And so here in this particular place, some in the past have interpreted it as um, especially those who reject Christ predominantly are going to say that this refers to um, the, uh, an angelic messenger who speaks in behalf of God, whereas I think we see a different picture. Go to Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 6 for me. Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 6. And see what it is that Stephen's pulling from. Although I haven't covered all of this, you'll notice that if you go and circle, if you have a reference Bible or something like that, and you go circle all the references that he makes to the Old Testament, even the order in which he presents uh, all these things, he does a masterful job. You know, he doesn't have a Bible right in front of him at the time. Stephen's all working from memory, quoting lengthy passages of scripture, and he's dead on. Amazing. Uh, in his use of the Old Testament. And so you look at all of those and go to chapter 3 of Exodus and notice what is said in 1 through 6, which is all before Stephen in his mind. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So what we see here though, to... The Jew who believes in one God and has not had the fuller revelation of Father, Son, and Spirit might be a little confused as to how to piece these things together exactly. Theologians have a term which you may be aware of called a theophany. Theophany is just two words, theos, and uh, in English we say epiphany. But it is an appearance of of God, And that's what we are seeing here in the Old Testament. This is a theophany. And in the Old Testament, we often see appearances of God in particular places. So not only does God appear to his people in the Old Testament, you can think of Adam and Eve hearing God walking in the garden as though he was a man. He, is appearing, he appears in particular places that are associated with him uh, in a special way. You see in 
in here, Moses tells us this is Horeb. This is the mountain of God. Whether it got that name before or after, I, I tend to presume after. We're told this in verse 1. He also <clears throat> identifies it as Horeb. Most of you should know that lots of commentators, John Calvin and, and many other theologians, see this mountain as one and the same as Sinai. Very well could be two peaks, could be one side and the other side, known by different names, but there's lots of biblical evidence to say that this is a particularly special mountain, and it strengthens the understanding which would say that this is an appearance of God for in Exodus 20. We all know that this same situation comes about again. The Lord descends on the mountain in, flame, in a flame of fire and speaks and terrifies the people such that they don't want to hear his voice anymore or see the amazing sight just as Moses did some years earlier. So <clears throat> what we need to understand is that this is an appearance of God theophany. But what I want to show you, because this is the theme of scripture, what I want you to be able to see Christ in the Old Testament, and, and sometimes he appears. So I want to give you, at this point, go to um, a couple different places in the New Testament and show how they consist together, how they are harmoniously read, so that we might understand what I'm going to assert today, that this is not just a theophany, but I, I like the more particular term. It's a Christophany. This is Christ appearing to Moses in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Sometimes Christophany, if you go look it up, it'll be referring to after the resurrection. We're talking about a time before that, before the incarnation even. So <clears throat> to do this, what I'd like to do is, you don't have to hold your place here, but I'd like you to go to John chapter 1 to a very key set of verses. John, the gospel of John, that is, chapter one, you'll know that the presentation of Jesus Christ begins, uh, but he doesn't call him Jesus at first. He calls him the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he, he is not the same person. We're going to work this out in verse 14 and following. But what I want you to catch is that the presentation is the word of God who is separate from God. That is, there are two persons. They are both God, yet there is father and son. <clears throat> now, I don't want to spend tons of time because this is a very familiar verse, but what this classic presentation does after identifying the word as God, yet not the Father, then we hear in verse 14 and 18 these really crucial words for our text today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Father, Son, and at this particular time being talked about, there is coming into human experience the eternal Son who was God and existed infinitely in the past, never came into being. He is the eternal God, but he is made flesh. Now listen, this is <clears throat> some of, if you have the ESV or you have 
the NASB or you have um, many other uh, newer translations, it, there is some textual difficulty if you're in Sunday school before. This is all ground that we've covered, and so I don't have to remind you fully. But <clears throat> the best reading is represented in the text of the ESV. It says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, and I think maybe translations should put a period so we can read this right. No one has ever seen God, period. The only God who is at the Father's side. So, well, he has made him known. So no one has ever seen God. I'm not talking about the Son, he says, I'm talking about the Father. No one's ever seen the Father at any time, but the only Son, the unique God, that is the Son, the eternal Son, has actually made the Father known. So who was seen in Exodus? Who was seen in the burning bush? Which person? (laughs) The Son, not the Holy Spirit, Son. Good try. This is validated. Uh, I, I won't have you turn. You can if you're quick. But John chapter 12. You all know probably Isaiah's temple vision when he's called to be a prophet of God. He's in the temple. He sees Yahweh high and lifted up. And he hears these words that are quoted in John 12. And <clears throat> this is an explanation. Why are the Jews not believing in Jesus? It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And this is verse 38 and following. So John 12, 38 and following. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, temple vision, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Listen to this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So I'll let you go look at those passages in your spare time, but... This is the temple vision who he saw, if you go back to Isaiah, is is Yahweh, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And that's what he says to him after. But what does John say? John says he saw him, that is Christ Jesus, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but would not speak about him for fear of the Jews. Now listen, what we see here is the consistent teaching of the New Testament, but I want to bring it out in John because it's very clear here, is that Christ was seen before the incarnation. That is, those appearances of God in the Old Testament were what we call Christophanies. They were Christ appearing before he had ever taken on flesh. If you understand this, this is the... Uh, an immense proof for the deity of Christ. Christ doesn't come into being at a point in time 
as it relates to his deity. He is the eternal son. Never had a beginning. Will never have an end. Yet at the same time, he is fully man. He at a point in time has taken on flesh and men have seen his glory. Though it is the glory that he had even before he took on flesh there. He is the God man. And so we see that Jesus shows up in God's redemptive plan, even from the very beginning. Exodus is close to the beginning of the story, and we even see him before that, <clears throat> since Yahweh appears to Abraham and to Adam and Eve. Therefore, what we need to understand is Stephen, along with the rest of the scriptures, the reason you can feel jarred in one sense or in one sentence it'd say, I am God, and that's who's speaking. And on the other hand, it's an angel, is what we see in the Old Testament is angel of Yahweh or various other figures, even Daniel, uh, when their friends are thrown into the fire, there's one like a son of man with them. Jesus is all over redemption. He is the source of redemption from the very beginning. It is the pre-incarnate Jesus, the divine son who is visible often as God appearing to his people in the Old Testament. Jesus is appearing on the pages of scripture even before we know his name, before he comes and takes on a human nature. Jesus is central in the story. Now, because that's only a couple of verses, I want to continue to lay this out just so that you don't have this really bad thing that happens in our Christian culture, which is to think of the Bible really as a disjointed two separate books. One's for Christians, one's for uh, Jewish believers and so forth like that. Uh, This is a book for the whole world, even beyond the church. It is a book for all of us, and the redemption in Christ Jesus has been consistent throughout all the pages of scripture. We just know it more clearly than our father Abraham. Now we see here in verse 33, if if you're there in Acts, in Acts chapter 7, verse 33, it says, then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I want to comment on this. As you saw in Exodus, this is the mountain of God. That is Horeb, or as I take it, Horeb, Sinai. And now Moses is told to take off his sandals. Why? Why do that? The, The presence of the Lord God sets apart the mountain. That's why it's called the mountain of God. He's stepping into the presence of God himself. And so it is a space that is to be treated differently than all other spaces. This space, when we're called to worship by our first reading of the scriptures, is a a different space. We've inaugurated a different time of worship that happens nowhere else in your life. But here, the liturgy of the Lord's service is a unique place of blessing and we treat it differently than we do all other places and and now even when i step in this pulpit i think of 
putting on the mantle of prophet in the sense that I am here to declare the word of the Lord, not the word of Fred, not the word of of any particular person. It is a unique time. And just in that same way, in that same way, um, in the beginning of, of Joshua's story, we see the theme again. He is in the presence of Christ Jesus. Moses is, takes off his shoes in the presence of God. And then in Joshua's story, just to recapitulate all that's gone on, you'll know that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They're driven out of the presence of God. But the whole meaning of redemption is to bring us back into the presence of God. And so they cross over. They, they are sent out of the garden to the east. And then they travel at this point in Joshua's story. They are to cross the Jordan back into the promised land. There is a restoration of Israel, the son of God, to be where God is going to live among his people for the next many, many years. It's a theological theme that's being picked up. And well, what do you know? When they're sent out of the garden, what do they have to guard the garden? That is a angel with a flaming sword, which turns every which way. And then Joshua coming back into the land of promise, then encounters, what do you know? A sword and one with it drawn. This is from Joshua in this section from verse chapter 5, verse 13 on. Listen to this. <clears throat> when Joshua was by Jericho, that's before they got any of the work of expelling the serpentine enemies from the land, says he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries? And he said, no, I am a commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. The Greek translation of this text is, uh, is the highest form of worship, Latruo. What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. That is, we run into uh, religious worship from Joshua, the head of God's people, as it were, on earth. And then he runs into the commander of the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is entering into the presence of the Redeemer. And he says, no, I'm not against you. I'm not for your enemies. I, I am for you. I, I am here guarding the promised land. <clears throat> and what they are going to enter into is God's place. And so Yahweh's army um, is, or Yahweh's place is holy. It's sanctified. It's set apart. It's no mere mortal here, but the Lord himself and this is the same Lord who we read about in Second Thessalonians who will one day, with a sword, inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel with his flaming fire and his mighty angels. It is this Christ who stands in the Old Testament, who comes to his people, and who comes to save. He's not 
uh, popping onto the scenes. He is the center of redemption. Where I want to go now in our time is we're not really going to do any more uh, work bouncing from place to place in the text of Scripture. But I want to make a theological application for a time. And then I want to turn to something that we see in Moses and make a, a practical application to us. They're both practical, just one's more theologically geared. And that is that we have a Christ-centered redemption. I want to bring this to a head. Uh, read with me, if you're there, verse 35 and 36, <clears throat> just so that you have this. I have this in mind as well as I make this point. It says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, that is Christ, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And how did he do that? (laughs) Well, that's because Christ was there. Christ was present, redeeming his people. He came down to redeem them. There's a little phrase in Jude 5, right before Revelation, there's this tiny little book called Jude. And verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. He came down in the form of an angel and said, I've come to deliver. And then he does do so. And so he is at center here. And in order to get the point of Stephen's sermon and see how these things all wrap up, you might ask, Stephen, I still don't understand. The high priest asked you a question. Verse 1 says, is Jesus going to destroy the temple? And is he going to change the customs of Moses? Stephen, how do these things fit together? And I think the answer comes when we see what redemption is in the first place. I'm going to focus on the temple. I'm not going to touch customs. That'll be next week. But what I want to say is that the, the redemption that has happened in Old Testament and New is triune redemption. The Father sends the Son and empowers a leader to deliver the people from their slavery to sin and, and to redeem Israel at the time. And so what we see is that Moses himself is nothing. To, to focus on Moses or to focus on the temple or any other thing in the past and not to recognize the bigger thing that God is doing, that is, namely, God himself is present. That, that's why there's a holy place. This is to miss the whole point. We should understand that Moses is nothing. He recognizes this himself. Exodus 33 The golden calf incident happens after the giving of the law. And God says, I'm going to still accomplish my purposes, but I ain't going with you. You're a stiff-necked people. And Moses prays this way and intercedes before the Lord in 33, 15, and 16. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us 
so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Let me bring it to a head this way. Maybe it'll make sense to you. Moses recognizes something these people don't. All these things, the deliverance from Egypt, the banishing of enemies, the land itself where God would dwell, the tent of meeting, what good are they for? What, what good are they for? We should add what the tent of meeting turns into, that is the temple. What's it good for? What's its purpose? By itself, nothing at all. It's a pretty building. But to be knocked down, if its presence, if the presence of God is not there, all it symbolized is Jesus to come. He is the one who tabernacles with us. It is his presence that makes the difference. Moses doesn't make the difference. The temple doesn't make the difference. These are all pointers to a greater reality. The unbelieving Jews at this time who are listening to Stephen, they just want to hold on to the relics. But they don't care about the one or desire to worship the one who makes those relics holy. That actually make it the place to worship in the first place. All of redemption is about Jesus Christ. And then by his redemption, the Holy Spirit that is granted to us. It was always pointing to something bigger. Redemption is about Christ Jesus. He's the main focus. Old Testament to New Testament. <clears throat> and I think there's part of the story that we miss uh, to our own detriment. If we, if we understand this message that the whole point of, of Scripture, the whole point of salvation is to bring God's presence to us. You and I have fallen in sin. There's no way for us to make it into God's presence by what we do. Not any longer. At a time that was possible for Adam, yet it is no longer. It is the redemption of Christ is to bring, is to bring God's presence to us. He has to bridge the gap. God has to come down and enter our experience so that he can bring us back up as it were. And this is the first aspect that we need to understand really clearly that God's presence is to be with us. God with us, Emmanuel. And then a second part of that is what really the whole book of Acts focuses on. The redemption is accomplished. And Acts focuses on God's presence, that is Christ's presence through his spirit in us, in the world. That's called the kingdom. If you, want to, if you want to understand what the book of Acts is all about, it's about God's kingdom here on earth in force now so that we are changed. We are brought into and under his rule. It's not merely something for a later stage of history. Now, I'll focus a little bit more on that next time. But what I want to do now is make a practical application because <clears throat> Moses points forward to Christ ultimately, right? He's the center of redemption, but I've, I've done that sermon.
And now what I want to also point out is the fact that God also appoints ministers that he leads by the hand of Christ. If you picture it this way, by the hand of the angel, you have Moses being sent. There is Christ who's leading Moses. There's a lesser officer that's ordained for the people of God, a physical, tangible one in the here and now. Christ Jesus has come. And what has he done? Well, he sent apostles, and then that was uh, combined with prophets and those who gave to us the scriptures. And when they died and their ministry course was finished, then, uh, and even in the midst of that time, there is ordaining elders and deacons in every single church. And so you have this, this pattern whereby God anoints a leader and then gives lesser officers so as to guide the people. So in Moses' day, you'll remember that even though Moses, as a type of Christ, Jethro, his father-in-law, after coming and sacrificing to the Lord, then says, hey, you're going to die if you keep doing it this way. People were waiting night and day on him, and he was judging the people day and night. He was getting worn out, and the people were getting worn out because they had to wait forever. Uh, they didn't have due process. <laughs> it was slow. It wasn't speedy trial. Uh, it was very short. And, and, and so there was an appointment of other chiefs, elders of Israel, as they get to be become known as, and that's what we have ordained in the church, elders. That's why it's used the same term as in the Old Testament. And so what we see is that there is a responsibility given to lesser shepherds, Christ, we believe, is our chief shepherd, but he has appointed myself and three other elders so as to shepherd this church. He, he has lifted up rulers to rule over you, which is a benefit or supposed to be to us. I don't have to mention the excesses because, of course, you guys all know excessive things. But what I want to do is, <clears throat> obviously, Moses and those who are appointed under him we know their responsibility. They're to lead the people of God. That's pretty obvious. But what we need to also focus on is, well, what is the responsibility of the congregation? This is a, a two-way road. If, if there are shepherds, then there are sheep. There are those who lead. There's those who follow. How, how does this relationship work? And so I'd like to just flesh that out a bit because part of the resistance to the Holy Spirit that they had was resisting Moses. It's resisting the, the system of government that was in Israel at the time. They didn't listen to the laws. That's one aspect we'll focus on. But they didn't also listen to the chiefs. They didn't listen to the elders. How did they resist? Well, it's not just that they simply resisted the Holy Spirit. They resisted the Holy Spirit through resisting Moses, the appointed elders. And, and so that applies to our situation right here. We need to understand that as congregants, uh, all of your elders are congregants as well, by the way, we all have a job. And as it relates to pastor and shepherd, though, I hope you can broaden this out further. I don't mean to say it's only here. Um, One of the key and very simple things when it comes to any leader and follower or shepherd sheep is a, a relationship of submission. Same that you find in and being a husband and a wife. You have a leader, and then you have one who submits. And so naturally, 
one of the primary responsibilities that the congregation is to do in the New Testament church is Hebrews thirteen seventeen submit to your leaders and those who are given to watch over your souls. But what does it, what is the problem or why would I like to talk about this? Well, the problem is that somebody in our church day and age, because of how we think of our Christian life in terms of the congregation, is somebody can go and attend a church for 10 years, maybe more than that, and never really submit to their pastor. Somebody can go and not actually be exercising a true submission to their leaders. They're resisting the Holy Spirit in a way or two or more. And what do I mean? Well, the pastor's job is to prophetically declare God's will to you. The scriptures, of which you know all of it, right? No, neither do I. Both of us are from God's words challenged and in ways that we haven't thought through before. Ways that are difficult. Ways that require submission. Ways that require you going to the scriptures and saying, is that faithful? Should I obey that? Is that right? Well, in our day and age, especially for myself, when you're in a conservative, Bible-believing context, we all say we want to follow all the scriptures. We all say we believe the word of God. And yet what happens is there is tons and tons of overlap. There are things that we agree on. Most of my sermons, probably, you say, oh yeah, I already believe that. I know that. So what's, what's submission when I tell you, just remind you what you already know? What you already believe, what you already say. Oh, thanks for that reminder, Pastor. Appreciate it. What's submission mean there? Well, not much. I'm just stirring you up by way of reminder. What does submission mean, though, when it's in areas where you're like, ah, I don't know. Is that what the scripture says? What's what's the congregation's responsibility? Well, let me just say that it, it is my experience and not just my experience, but many is where pastors experience in our context, multiple, this is other pastors included, uh, congregants who run filters. Uh, I, I like hearing everything that I hear. I can say yes and amen to everything that I know. <clears throat> and anything that uh, doesn't necessarily fit my paradigm or things that I might be uncomfortable with or things like that get filtered out as unimportant. Places where I don't have to submit anymore. I, I, I'm not sure about that, so I'm just going to relegate it to, I don't have to listen to that stuff. This happens all the time. And so what has happened in our, our experience here, of especially those who have left, is people, <clears throat> because all they want to do is give you, oh yeah, I like that, I like that. This is what I've heard before. This is what the last pastor said. I, I trust this. Uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What they do is inadvertently, they filter out everything. And and when there's something that gets stuck in the filter, that gets flagged, uh uh-oh, there's a problem, you can leave. No goodbye, no thank you, no going to scripture, nothing. Just go. Because there was never submission from the heart. What is a danger for all of us, in every sphere of life really, is that we would have elders who are in your heart. You don't say, they're my elders. 
you have a pastor, you don't say, that's my pastor. And that takes a certain level of commitment from the heart so that what you don't have hidden underneath your external appearance is a, a whole arm's length between you and your shepherds such that you can always stiff arm things that you don't like. You never want anybody to get so close as to have to do the hard work of submitting where we're all supposed to, things that we all need to be called to. Don't think of this just from top down. You should think of it in every, every realm of your life. So the exhortation really is <clears throat> we have to, as congregants, one to another, and to your pastors, you have to have a level of trust, a desire to receive new ministry, ministry that hasn't happened in your life before, things that don't necessarily fit at first glance. A shepherd's job is to be faithful, but the believer's job is to invite pastors into their hearts and doing what it takes to build trust. Now, let me qualify this, and you should hear this loud and clear. You should never, ever, ever submit to anything that is not biblical. Never. That should be apparent. Nor should you be unthinking and, and filled with naivete, as though, yeah, pastor's always right. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about either. I'm talking about that there is a desire to invite new faithfulness into your life through sermons, through counsel, one-on-one, through places that you haven't thought through, are new to you, or it may be difficult to receive at first. But that would send us all into the scriptures and to a place of trust. So here's the exhortation, maybe in a different way. Pursue a heart that can be wide open towards your pastors. This takes time. It takes time to build trust. That's good. That's right. But it takes time also outside corporate worship. It just will not happen here by and large only. It will take push and pull in Sunday school, in homes, in council, and through regular fellowship. Trust and commitment go together hand in hand. If you, if you don't have any commitment, you can walk away and it doesn't matter because you never, you never had trust there. These things go together and that's what I'm calling you to, which implies time, prayer for others, and much conversation. Without it, most likely any meaningful ministry in your life will only come through personal Bible study. It should come from there. And it will only come through internet teachers who you approve of. You should have those. You should read good books. You should be influenced by people. None of those things are bad. But if you never develop a a heart commitment and trust, you, you see how this is broad, to your congregation, to your pastors, even from wife to husband or husband to wife, you will, you will never allow the right godly ministry of others in your life. You'll, you'll functionally give no one else authority. You, you will live in a world of your own opinion. And the only voices that are approved as authorities will be your own. And those 
who fit in your echo chamber. In the church, we're specifically crashed into people so that you wouldn't live in an echo chamber. God has intentionally put people who's going to be like a burr in your saddle in order to get you out of the place that is comfortable and which merely can just tell me everything that I want to hear. No, the Proverbs are really clear. The path of of life is one of rebuke and correction and exhortation, all of which you didn't give to yourself. And so what I'm asking us to do is to see that God's path from the very beginning is also the same path that we have here. One of accountability, both for myself and the elders to the scriptures and you to the scriptures and each other as congregants. We should really emphasize that the redemption of Christ has granted us the outpouring of the Spirit in such a way that now you could call yourself a priest of the new covenant. I don't know if you think about yourself that way. Whether man or woman, all of us are a royal priesthood, which means you have a ministry to do to one another. And so each one of you should, not only to your pastors, but also to one another, seek a sort of heart posture Again, not naive or foolish or anything like that, but one that is open to the ministry of people, you know, that you can think of pretty clearly who who might disagree with you and might challenge you in the ways of the Lord. So here's the call. Wisely pursue trust in this community, commitment in this community, And the ministry which God has called you to in this body of Christ. And may you flourish because of it. Let us pray.